Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And that's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's publicly accessible for all children, not just the advantaged, not just those that can pay or those who are of the right religion. It also should be public in ownership and control with no private public partnerships or privatisation by stealth. And our public education system should be the only one that is publicly funded because it's the only one that's publicly accountable. And if we had genuine democratically elected governments, then we would have governments that saw it as a priority to provide a first-rate public education for every child. And I underline every child because we're going to talk about the children who are in prisons today, every child in this country. So we have a press release, 664, which we've put on our website at www.adogs.info. And this is it. Donvale Youth Detention Centre. A lid pulled off only one stinking garbage tin. Dogs googled Dondale Youth Detention Centre and this is what they found. There were 28 Google reviews. It's a prison in the Berrimah, Northern Territory, Australia. The Dondale Youth Detention Centre is an Australian maximum security prison for juvenile males and females and it's located in Berrima, Northern Territory, Australia, according to Wikipedia. Its address is 90 Tivendale Road, Berrima, Northern Territory, 0828. It has a phone number. Its capacity is 38 and it was opened in November 1991. <clears throat> then there's a question own this business? Question mark. So it's a business. Then there are reviews. Quote, quote, the most messed up juvenile detention centre in Australia. Another one, Don Dale Concentration Camp. Another one, this organisation is a disgrace. And then there's a notice that it has been closed. Now, anyone who watched the Four Corners program on the Northern Territory Don Dale Youth Detention Centre last Monday night could only wonder whether Australia has progressed at all since the days of Port Arthur in its treatment of disadvantaged youth in our society. 
Teachers, lawyers and social workers who have had any dealings with such children in privately run detention centres throughout Australia have known about these outrageous institutions for years. There have been many whistleblowers. There have even been many reports, uh, Human Rights Commission reports, especially among teachers allowed behind the closed walls. And things have worsened since globalisation and the privatisation of prisons. For them, Australian children, and we are dealing with children, a child is under the age of 17, they're subject to worse treatment than animals by untrained guards and corporations in pursuit of profit. At the same time as a few high-profile politicians suffering from momentary knee-jerks are tut-tutting and setting up a royal commission, educational resources for disadvantaged children in the public system, the TAFE colleges and the prisons themselves, are actually under threat. The New South Wales government, for example, is looking at cutting more than 70 teachers employed within the state's prison system and outsourcing training to specialist organisations, namely organisations that employ untrained teachers because they're cheaper. Number of teachers and educational officers is going to be reduced, listen to this, from 158 to 87. But according to the New South Wales government, these changes are part of the Better Prisons Reform, aimed at lifting standards, strengthening accountability and helping to meet a commitment to reduce adult re-offending by 5% by 2019. Is it any wonder that people are not, not voting for these major political parties or even voting at all when they come up with that kind of rubbish? The New South Wales Teachers Federation has labelled the plan appalling and said that teachers provided a critical opportunity for prisoners to learn to read and write, helping them break the cycle of poverty and crime. The Greens MP in New South Wales, David Shoebridge, said the teachers were highly skilled and their sacking would result in a loss of experience in providing skills to prisoners. He said, it's not about better focusing of services, it's about savaging of services. 40% reduction in overall headcount in corrective services education when we've got record prisoner numbers. This looks very much like a prisons minister who's desperately keen for budget cuts because his failed law and order auction has driven the prison population to such heights that they're looking for savings anywhere. Now, Dogs would like to acknowledge the courage of one of the main victims who put his safety on the line with the assistance of his lawyers for this um, program that we saw last Monday night. Because the victims and the whistleblowers give us about a week of news and then they're forgotten. And this was a boy who's still in the system and his name is Dylan Voller. He's a lad from Alice Springs who had the guts to stand up to his tormentors and those who watched the Four Corners program witnessed their attempts, the attempts of untrained guards to torture and break the boy. But his is not an unusual story. 
He had gone on a bender with ice and alcohol and proved himself a danger to the community under the influence of these drugs. So, although he was a child, instead of trying to help him with his drug problem, he was incarcerated and subjected to solitary confinement, an extraordinary results to break not his habit but his spirit. Because the one thing you could see with this boy was he had spirit. Australians are left wondering whether we've regressed to the days of Point Pua in Tasmania and the sad remnants of child convicts sent halfway around the world that are buried there. But when the shouting dies and a few political heads have gone home to dinner in disgrace, Dylan will still be in detention in grave danger of payback. Now, there's some good news in this, and it is that a teacher or teachers have actually taught this child to read and write, which is more than you can say for the children who were at Point Pua in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Thanks to what education this lad has been given, we have a bit more evidence of his tragic existence than graffiti on the walls of a 19th century prison cell. He wrote a letter thanking the Australian people as follows. On the 26th of the 7th, 16, he wrote this, and it's on the internet and you can read it. His own writing. I would just like to thank the whole Australian community for the support you have showed for us boys as well as our families. I would also like to take this opportunity to apologise to the community for my wrongs and I can't wait to get out and make up for them. I would like to thank the ABC Four Corners and my lawyers, O'Brien Solicitors, Peter O'Brien, D.O. Indivar, as well as N.A.A.J.A., Matthew Derrick, Jared Sharp, John Rawnsley, Australian human rights lawyer, Ruth Barson, and C-A-A-I-A-S, Antoinette Carroll, for all the help in getting the truth out there to the public and my family for all the support through the hard times. And thank you to my mates, Ethan, Jake Roper, Josiah Binsaris, Leroy O'Shea and Kieran Webster. And you can read that letter and we've given you the um the clickbait the clickbait if you like, the, the where you can go. And you can also see more about this boy and his life to date and his sister who has stood by him. Now we owe we Australians, we taxpayers We older people owe Dylan and other children like him. And we owe all of our Australian children, those of us who have had the very best opportunity that this country had to give. We owe them a safe home and environment for learning. We owe them a good basic education and skills for employment. We owe them employment and a future. If we do not put our resources into educational provision, we will condemn children like Dylan to torture at the hands of private prison corporations. And this is why the dogs, 
for the last 40 years have been taking on the religious institutions and others that divide our children and leech the financial resources out of our public systems, leaving disadvantaged children like Dylan in limbo. They are a prey for drug dealers and prison warders. Because this boy was a football-loving teenager who end up who ended up committing a 24-hour crime spree while he was high on ice. But we are now confronted with the shocking photographs of this boy restrained in a chair wearing a spit hood in juvenile detention. And those pictures have not only gone around Australia, those pictures have gone around the world and it is our shame and our disgrace so the one good thing out of this is that Dylan has been taught to read and write he's not like the children who were enslaved in the monasteries of the middle ages that have only left us um, crosses to try to prove that they were there or the children who came out from Great Britain who couldn't read and write and who put their, um, their signs on the prison walls in Port Arthur. Dylan has at least been taught to read and write, and uh, he can tell us his own story. And there are brave people in Australia, teachers and lawyers, who have made his story public. But it's now up to us to do something about it. So that's all from me. We'll have a little bit of music and um, then Robert will take over and tell you what's happening to TAFE or VET or whatever you want to call it uh, in New South Wales and elsewhere.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. That's a little bit of Monteverdi. Um, doing a lot with just one note there in the middle, I think. Yeah, it's just like modern music. doesn't have much of a tune, but gee, it's good, isn't it? Love those trumpets. Um, you listen to the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools, D-O-G-S. And every week we're here um, to highlight the issues that are going on in public education in Australia and indeed around the world. Um, it's often said here at the Dogs that if you want to find out what's going on in Australia in a couple of years' time, you look over to the United Kingdom or the United States. And there's finally, and interestingly, some good news coming out of the United Kingdom when it comes to vocational education and training. Um, just recently in the last week, it's worth pointing out that um, the various senior, economic, uh, senior economists in Australia, um, one, of, one of whom was on the Productivity Commission, have just come out and said that privatising the whole concept of privatising is actually destructive to the Australian economy. And to back up his arguments that privatising public services is destructive to Australia, he front and centre said that the, what has happened to the vocational education and training system in Australia has been a complete disaster. Um, he says this because it has been a complete disaster. Almost half of all the vocational education and training in Australia today is run by for-profit private providers. Um, and this has created a terrible situation where the kids and the adults who go and get vocational training are not getting the training that they require and the employers aren't very happy with the products that are coming out. The whole thing is a total mess and more than that, it's costing us significantly more um, as a nation in terms of dollars rather than in just in terms of social and social stupidities, um, it's costing the Australian economy and the Australian taxpayer so much more money than it would have cost if it was actually just being provided by the TAFE system of old. Now, in the United Kingdom, they've come to the same conclusion and they've decided to do something about it. Now, I reported on some aspects of this last week, um, but it's turned out that the, um, the Australian newspapers actually picked up on what's going on in the UK. Um, also, the, the Conversation, that website, has picked up on it. And what's happening in the UK um, for free market theologians is actually extraordinarily radical. And just to highlight an article by Gavin uh, Moody from The Australian, which was published on the 20th of July this year, he says that the British government recent plans for English technical education is a rejection of the market and competency-based training. It also reverses the convergence of vocational and academic education that has also been a major trend for decades in Australia, Britain and the United States. Now, what the British government describes as the most significant transformation in post-school education in 70 years is likely to be influential here in Australia because of the extensive policy borrowings between Australia and Britain, which we at the Dogs have highlighted for years and years. Now, both countries, the UK and Australia, have followed each other in establishing and then abolishing university grants commissions. They've both um, established and then abolished polytechnics, that's Colleges of Advanced Education, um, they've both done the same thing in establishing and abolishing, um, sort of collapsing these polytechnics into universities, and of course done the same thing in introducing income contingent loans. I mean, that's the hex debt here in Australia. And they've also done the same thing by establishing associate degrees or foundational degrees and establishing research excellence assessments for various universities. Attempting to create a marketplace and monetize the various aspects of higher education in both countries. 
Now, Britain's post-16 skills plan proposes to collapse in the UK 21,000 different qualifications into 15 technical education routes. In Britain, vocational qualifications are awarded by 158 organisations, many of which are private, for-profit organisations that multiply qualifications to increase their market share. In the passages that are going to be written about Australia, the plan rejects the market in qualifications. And quoting from that report, the report says, Instead of competition between different awarding organisations leading to better quality and innovation in the design of qualifications, it can lead to a race to the bottom, in which awarding organisations compete to offer qualifications that are easier to pass and therefore of lower educational value. But, of course, for the organisations, a low educational value is the same thing as a higher financial value for that organisation. Now, in the UK, this plan establishes two educational tracks for students after the age of 16 by building a technical education track um, to complement that that already well-established academic track. So it goes back to the old days. You know, at a certain point, are you going to uni or are you going to get a trade? They're going back to the really simple, basic ideas. The technical track, in turn, will have two options. You can go to college to get a technical education, and that will include industry placements, and the employment-based technical education, such as, oh, here's a word I haven't heard for a while, apprenticeships, which include at least 20% college-based education. So you're either working somewhere and you go to college a bit, or you're in college... and then you go to work a bit. Sounds a bit like not sounds a bit like the sixties and seventies, doesn't it, Gene? You know, back in the, you know, going back to something that was there in the first place. Now, college-based technical education um, will extend to the diploma level, and employment-based technical education will extend to the bachelor level, and incorporate about a thousand different degrees and apprenticeships that have been established since twenty thirteen. Now, you think a thousand degrees and apprenticeships? Well. There's about a thousand different trades out there, so you'd expect someone who's going to be an electrician to have a different degree to someone who's going to be a plumber. Now, the government's plan closely follows a report by an independent panel that was chaired by former Science and Innovation Minister David Sainsbury and included Alison Wolfe, a professor at King's College London, who had influences on both sides of politics. The panel... When put together, now these aren't your um, lefty liberal types. These are these are conservative types and 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 political. What what do you call them, Jean? Um, courtiers, courtiers like <laughs> like apparatchiks and courtiers like like Gonski was here in Australia. Mm. Um, but um, upon actually looking at the facts, they came to some very startling and I think quite radical conclusions. Certainly, if you're a free market theologian, these are radical conclusions. Because the panel actually rejected basing qualifications on national occupational standards, Britain's version of the training packages. Again, in a passage that applies directly to Australia, the panel states that the national occupational standards, and I quote, have been derived through a functional analysis of job roles, and this has often led to an atomistic view of education and a rather tick-box approach to assessment, which is exactly what we have here in Australia. As such, we do not consider them to be fit for purpose for the use in the design of technical education routes. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. This panel of apparatchiks, or courtiers, having looked at what's going on, rejected public funding being allocated to for-profit providers. No public money 
to private companies when it comes to vocational education. How revolutionary can you get? I would suggest that perhaps they've woken up that if they can't just import people who are trained from Europe anymore just easily and abandon their own children, then uh, they might have to go back and train their own children. I've had the impression in Australia and elsewhere that since globalisation, the companies believe that they can just wander around the world and get cheap labour wherever they want to get it and abandon the local children. So they don't need to educate or train the children. Perhaps with this rejection of globalisation that we're seeing in Britain and Australia and America and other countries too, the developed world, uh, they are starting to wonder where they are going to get their trained labour force from. Indeed. And actually I have an interesting article here about what's going on in Nigeria when you're talking about international education companies mm. wanting to go, to go to various countries and be funded um, to set up private education systems. But just to return, actually, Jean, and thank you for your comments. I think they're really relevant. Um, just to return to this, this panel has rejected, and I'm going to say this again, public funding being allocated to for-profit providers. Now, in Australia, recent statistics show that last year, in Australia, private providers of what used to be TAFE now offer 46% of government-funded vocational education in Australia. That's almost half. And you might be interested in this, Jean. In Queensland, that figure rises to 70%. In Queensland, 70%, actually 69%, let's call it 70% of all vocational training is provided by private for-profit companies. Now, the British panel estimated that at least 30% of technical education funding was allocated to private providers. So in the UK, it's less than it is in Australia. In Australia, we've raced ahead. People have jumped on the bandwagon. They've got their money from the government, and everyone's very happy if you're in that business. Trouble is, we, the people of Australia, are suffering for it. Well, we've got a bill, haven't we, of billions of dollars we now. We do. And uh, they're, they're worried about the... Um about the so-called debt that we have to pay. Well, this is a debt. The trouble is it's a debt on our children for these private providers that have made their millions and wandered off. Well, it's a debt on the children very specifically because it's the children who owe in the first place. But it's actually a debt on all of us in, in, into the generations because these people aren't getting the training they require because in a for-profit market, if you can get away with doing what used to be a two-year course and, and get away with pumping them out in six months with a low quality qualification, then you'll do it because that's part of your profit motive. And indeed, to be fair, if you're that private company that's doing that, it's your responsibility to your shareholders to maximise your profit. Now, the panel, and I think this argument's a very interesting one. We've used it here in Australia, but now they're using it, these apparatchiks in the UK. The panel argued the reason for not giving any public money to for-profit providers was, and I quote, Given what appears to be the highly unusual nature of this arrangement, that is, giving money to private companies, compared to other countries, and the high costs associated with offering world-class technical education, this panel sees a strong case for public funding for education and training to be restricted to institutions where surpluses, that is, profits, are reinvested in the country's educational infrastructure. So they're saying if we're going to give someone some money, we want to make sure it goes on education. If you get a profit, that profit 
isn't profit, it's a surplus that's reinvested in the education process, not just taken out and, and, and pumped offshore. The panel also stated that, and I quote, publicly subsidised technical education should be delivered under a not-for-profit arrangement, i.e. to an organisation that isn't for profit. What is, so, so they're going to give it to um, religious groups, are well, they? Well, you see, this is where the various religious groups are now sort of moving, you know, rubbing their hands together in glee, saying, oh, we can take that off your hands for you. The trouble is that uh, it's about time we actually looked at these religious organisations and realised that they, <laughs> they are profiteering. Mm. And this, if it took place in Australia, which I think it's likely to have to happen because we are wasting so much money, would actually be, yes, indeed, would be a significant reversal in Australia where private provision has exploded in Queensland now at 70%, but in 2011 it was 30%. So it's just, it's this recent, you know, month by month by month, it's an explosion. Now, Britain will implement this process while the country introduces an apprenticeship levy from April next year. This levy is similar to Australia's training guarantee and introduced um, a year after HECS in 1990 but was actually then discontinued. So this happened in Australia, this post-skills plan levy, um, and then it was taken away in 1994. Now, let me explain what this levy is. It requires employments with a payroll of more than $3 million, that is someone who's employing people with skills, to spend 0.5% of their payroll on apprenticeships. That's what happened in 1990, and then it was taken away in 1994 because the employers with the payrolls of more than $3 million didn't want to pay it. In the UK, they're bringing it in again. Here in Australia, I think we'll be following suit. These changes will be undertaken by a restructured bureaucracy. The new Prime Minister, Theresa May, has moved responsibility for further and higher education from the Department of Business into the Department of Education. So educating people used to be in the Department of Business and now it's going to be moved to the Department of Education. Absolutely radical stuff, isn't it, Jean? It's extraordinary what's going on over there in the UK. They're, they're going to run education um, in, in, in an education department. Who, who would have thought of such a thing? Well, a lot will depend, of course, on who is the education minister. I mean, this was all started, I believe, under Mr Gove, who's recently been trying to become the new Prime Minister of the UK. Um, oh, yes. After he'd done uh, Mr uh, Boris Johnson in... But yes, they live in very interesting times, aren't they? Yes, we'll be returning with more dogs defending government schools um, after these station messages. IPAN is inviting you to attend its anti-war conference and join the Close Pine Gap protests from the 26th of September to the 2nd of October in Alice Springs. Pine Gap facilitates US war activities, international espionage and their killer drone program. It's time to stop the drift to war and free Australia from US military bases. For more information on the IPAN conference, go to ipan.org.au and for protest details, see closepinegap.org. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, Sunday 14th of August. Brunswick Town Hall, Wurundjeri Land, 233 Sydney Road, Brunswick, 10am to 5pm. Free entry. Stalls, workshops, films, food, childcare and kids space available all day. For more information, go to amelbournebookfair.org. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. Arm yourself with ideas. A 3CR supporter. 
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. It's great to have your company. Um, we've been investigating education policy in the United Kingdom of late and what they're doing with, their, with what used to be TAFE in Australia's version over there and how, in fact, they're moving back to a very sensible process. Um, but I also hinted that private education providers, um, as Jean quite rightly said, aren't just wandering through the English-speaking world. They're running through the world trying to get wedges into various marketplaces. And I think it's very interesting. I'd like to quote also from a very interesting article, um, which is from a particular website called the Huffington Post, and it relates to education in the developing world. And I have an article here which proffers various arguments for um, giving low-fee private schools a seat at the table when it comes to education in the third world. Now, They've what, already taken it, Robert. I mean, a, a, a conglomerate like Haleybury College not only has a 52, well, it must be well over a 70 million place in King Street in uh, Melbourne, it has uh, colleges all over Asia as well. It is a big, big business. Well, it's interesting. I'd just like to quote here That's a from school. Dr. Kishmo Singh, who in September 24 was the Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Education. And he submitted a report to the United Nations General Assembly that focused on the privatisation of education. Now, Dr. Singh's position was that the state had responsibility for the provision of education and that the principles of responsibility of education lie with governments, thus emphasising a need to preserve education as a public good, which must not be reduced to a profit-making business. But at the same time... He says, ah, then we get the, yes, we get this strange and, and then at the same time he says, and I quote, um, non-government schools are serving the poor and are a universal phenomenon but are not always recognised as such. Non-government schools serving the poor should be treated as an integral part of achieving <laughs> the objective of basic education for all. It should be seen as a welcome complement to an often overburdened public system. Here we have they all. serve the poor if they are the right religion, but they very rarely serve the poor in a place like Australia. And of course the, the uh, religious groups that were set up to serve the poor in Ireland were the Christian brothers. And we know what happened with the Christian brothers here in Australia. Uh, it's been under the cover for generations, but this generation, it's actually come out thanks to uh, Ms Gillard and the uh, Sexual Abuse Commission. Mm. So one wonders about uh, these non-government organisations that serve the poor when they don't necessarily serve the poor or when they do serve the poor, it gets a little bit complicated about the service that they give to the poor. Sorry. <laughs> yes, well, that's, that's an interesting historical example. Um, here in 2016, it's getting rather interesting. There's a fight on. Now, Irene Pritzker, who's the president of the IDP Foundation, which is about um, advocating for private, not well, they call low-fee private schools, but let, well, let's just talk about what low-fee means in Nigeria. Um, he's having a fight with Dr. Singh. Dr. Singh says he concluded that privatising undermines education as a fundamental human right. Correct. 
it often excludes marginalised groups who are unable to pay tuition fees and that the emergence of low-fee private schools further undermines public schools and the right of universal access to education. Well, then he should come to Australia and see what's happening here. That's now, he's exactly right. Now, it's a very good case study. It is. Since this report, Dr Singh has continued to publish articles criticising a sector and this is where it gets interesting from this author. This author is Irene Pritzker. He says he clearly does not understand what, what these wonderful private providers are doing. Her foundation's position, is, she says, is definitely not to advocate privatisation of education, even though that's what she does. She says, without question, it is the responsibility of governments to provide free, quality education for all children and to provide every child with an equal opportunity. However, and this is however, when the reality is that this is not happening, governments, academics and funders have a moral obligation to respect and include the efforts of, of private operators of fee-paying schools to fill the gap. Isn't it wonderful how these moral questions come in very, very quickly and easily? The next now, thing will says, be are the, the rights of parents, of course. Parents have rights which are overarching and children's rights very quickly lose out. Well, I'd like to just quickly switch, actually. Other than in choice. We must have choice. Yes. Parents yes. must have choice. Yes, yes, you're right, Jean. Um, after, again, some, a few messages, I'd like to take this case study in terms of what's going on in the, in the, in the United Nations when discussing and bring it down to a very, very specific and small example of what's going on in certain suburbs in Sydney. When we talk about this right to a free, secular and universal education, which is held up by, by Dr Singh as something which all children on the planet should have, and demonstrate how this right is actually not, does not exist um, in certain suburbs of Sydney. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Welcome back to The Dogs program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial where we're discussing um, the current and future needs of education in Australia and the ridiculous things that are happening when it comes to privatising it all around the world, how the UK is fighting back, finally, and how Australia almost inevitably will have to. Um, we've been discussing about the rights of the child. You know, Jean was talking about it when it comes to children in juvenile detention here in Australia. But in certain affluent suburbs, in the electorate of Wentworth, Wentworth in Sydney. Wentworth is a very aspirational place. I'm, who's, who's the member for Wentworth again, Jean? Mr Turnbull, isn't it? Mr Turnbull <laughs> is, the, is, is, is the politician who... I don't think he'd who, be too concerned who listens, about the rights of his grandchildren. They're looked after, after all. He's oh, a multi, right. multi, multi multi-millionaire, isn't that's he? That's right. How do you preserve um, 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 your, your children's well-being into the future? Buy them a house if you can afford it. If you can't afford a house, well, that's your problem. In any case, um, there's a very interesting article, and... 
it's it's one of those strangely balanced articles you get from various conservative commentators. It's written by Kate Bastons, and it's written for the Wentworth Courier, which is the local paper in um, Mr Turnbull's electorate. And the article is entitled, Lack of Options and High Price of Private Education in the Eastern Suburbs Driving Atheist Families into the Catholic School System. <laughs> and it's a very long... Um, it's a very long um, heading for this particular article because when discussing this, you have discussing things like this, you have to be very careful because she's talking about the Catholic school system. And as we know here in Australia, if you want to be in any way critical of the Catholics or Catholic school systems, you better get your lawyers online before you even think about publishing. Anyway, Kate Bastons has published this article, and I'd like to share what she has to say. Cause it's, it is quite interesting. She says, non-religious parents have admitted to baptising their children to get them into Catholic schools in the eastern suburbs, which and these schools are tipped to swell by an extra almost 1,600 students by 2021. Now, the Sydney Catholic Schools spokesman, Mark Ricks, said about 90% of Catholic schools in Sydney's eastern suburbs are full or close to full, and they predicted enrolments to grow from 21,000 to about 23,000 in 2021, or by about 300 or so students a year. Mr Ricks, the spokesman for Sydney's Catholic schools, warned schools would struggle to absorb the increase unless the government stumps up more cash for the Catholic schools so they can build more buildings. He said that Catholic schools were looking for potential sites to build new schools in the East, but they were hopeful of more funding from the government to help them achieve this. Well, then why isn't the government producing public schools in the East? Because they're almost non-existent. And that is the point of this article. Well done, Jean. You've, you've preempted what this article's about. You're absolutely quite right. Now, a Bondi mother said that she got all three of her children baptised for the sole purpose of being able to send them to St. Charles Catholic Primary School, where they also learned the sacraments. She said, and I quote, We are atheists, but I couldn't afford private schools. I think what she means there is um, high-fee-paying private schools. And I didn't want to put them into the public sector, she said. Mm. Two of her children what have... What public al- sector? There's not too many in that area anymore. They sold off the Dover Heights High Girls' School to the, um, to the Jewish community, as I recall. Sorry. Um, she said that two of her children have already left school, but one of her sons is still at Waverley College. And he says he doesn't believe in God, but he loves the social and sporting elements of the school. Ah, oh, that's the one that had the swimming pool. That back in 1969, we uh, had a very good protest uh, about. Uh, we went and said that we had a right as taxpayers to swim in that pool. So we took our children and our picnic baskets and our dogs and we walked around and looked very, very kindly on that swimming pool. It was a great protest. It started the needs policy. Because suddenly, suddenly, the Labor Party realised that uh, there were wealthy private schools that were getting money. It was, it was the beginning. It was a very good protest and we got tremendous coverage, but only for a little while. The media in Australia takes an issue, blows it up and kills it. Just watch what happened, what will happen in the next few weeks to what happened on Four Corners last Monday. They take an issue, blow it up, and then kill it. And that's why 
the dogs over the century, over the last half century, have had such trouble in getting our message out to the public, and why three CR is so important because it means that we're still here talking about it. Absolutely, here on 3CR, 845 on the AM dial. And also on our website, you can get us at www.adogs.info. But to return to the rarefied atmosphere of the Wentworth electorate. Jean, you're absolutely right. Currently, as of today, 2016, there are 18 private secondary schools in the eastern suburbs. And there's three public schools. They are Randwick Boys High, Randwick Girls High and Rose Bay Secondary College. Now, Alicia Heath, the Eastern Campaign Leader of Community for Local Options for Secondary Education, said there are a growing number of non-religious families willing to, and I quote, convert their children to Catholicism because of the lack of public schools and the high price of private education. She says many families are going through the motions of getting their kids through the first sacraments to get their kids into Catholic schools as it's a cheaper financial alternative to the private schools. <coughs> he says it really does show the lengths people are being forced to go to due to lack of choice. Lack of choice. Mr Heath and Sky Molyneux, also from Close. Now, Close, who are Close again? They are the Community for Local Options of Secondary Education said the group wanted to see a new public school built in the area. Another mother said primary reasons for getting all four children baptised on the same day was to get them into Our Lady of Sacred Hearts in Kensington. She says, We are living in Surrey Hills, and the nearest high school would have been Balmain Secondary College, which would have meant my children catching three buses to get to school, because that's the closest secondary school. So she said, So that's when we started looking at Catholic schools, because the private schools were unaffordable. Now, Waverley College head Ray Paxton said their school was welcoming and inclusive of families from other faiths. He said, and I quote, With preference in giving to Catholic enrolments, we believe non-Catholic, non-Christian families enrich our school's community. He goes on to say, Our enrolment interview asks all families to consider the contribution they will make to the religious dimensions of our college. During these conversations, we have found the values of the majority of families are congruent with the Christian and Catholic values of our school. And I would actually add to that um, quite, quite, quite naughtily, and they pay us money, which is actually what it's all about. Now, enrolled, Catholic students are invited to participate <coughs> in the sacraments, but he says it's not compulsory. Yeah, right. The dog's position has always been that state aid is not only bad for education, it's even worse for religion because you're now attracting to religious schools people who are quite openly non-religious because it's now a business operation, not a genuine religious one. But, I mean, uh, perhaps the Catholic Church educational enterprise was fairly genuine for 80 years, but once they got into the High Court... Um, the hierarchy indicated exactly where they stood. It was a business operation. They were prepared for 26 days to try to prove that their schools were not religious institutions. Yes, that's true. Well, again, back here in 2016, the Catholic Education Commission of New South Wales estimated that it needs to build all these classrooms and it thinks the government should pay for it. 
They don't want a new state school to be built so that atheists or whatever it is can send their children to a free, secular and universal education. They want to take the money. Are they getting it? Well, last year, Catholic schools received $82.5 million in that electorate and independent schools received over $50 million in that electorate. And the New South Wales Education Minister, Andrew Piccoli, said that in the budgets, that will include $1.2 billion in funding to support non-government schools, which is an increase year on year of 5%. So, yes, they are going to get their money. Thank you very much. The government's also committed $60 million to a new inner-city high school of Cleveland Street, which will cater for 1,500 students, and that will open in about four years. Well, Cleveland Street all used to be a school. There used to be a school there, a high school there. So why is it suddenly, did they close, they must have closed it. They closed it and now they're opening again because that's what people need. I mean, people talk about choice, but they don't care about the choice of people who don't want to send their child to a No, no, they don't talk about the choice of the child itself. Um, What choices, for example, did that Dylan Voller have in Alice Springs? What choices do our children have? Now, Darlinghurst's mother, Maggie, um, welcomed the new school at Cleveland Street but said it would not be ready in time for her children um, to start in 2018. She said it's too late for her family. It's too late, which is sad that a parent has to say that. But she wanted the government to start planning for a new school in the eastern suburbs. She said, I thought, though I like the sound of some private high schools, they're too expensive even if I overcame the religious aspect. The government, she says, is discriminating against a growing section of the community because they are ignoring the fact that a chunk of the community are not eligible or interested in all the religious options. Now, I would like to, in just in very simple terms, talk about this idea of religious options um, because the Australian census um, is now probably... You've, you've got a copy of it there, and there's a big hoo-ha about... Um, your privacy and whether you should put your name on it or not put your name on it and and the retention of data. Um, Now, this is of concern to a large number of people but is in fact being supported in large part by various religious organisations who don't want people to fill out the 2016 census. Now, they don't want people to fill out the 2016 census because the 2016 census is the first census that offers the question, it's a very simple question, um, are you religious? And if you tick that answer to that question, then you go on to say, oh, this is my particular system of belief. In the past, it, has, it, hasn't op- it hasn't offered that option. It says, what religion are you? What religion are you? And right down the bottom you can say, well, actually, I'm not. So this format change is, in fact, has the potential in terms of policy-making, demographic and, indeed, lobbying efforts from various religious organisations to actually, for the first time in Australia, accurately reflect what the religiosity and, and, and the breadth of religiosity in Australia actually, actually is. But various religious organisations um, have actually been wanting to make sure that this is hijacked. And there have, in fact, and I have to report this, there's been some scaremongering saying that if you don't put, and this is the quote, the religion you were born with, as opposed to the religious views you hold, then Muslims will take over our country. If you don't put the religion you were... 2.2% of them. Indeed. 
In fact, using the 2011 census figures, apparently Christianity, back in the old census days, was 61.1%. And this will be overtaken, um, apparently, according to these scaremongers, um, by Islam, which is currently on 2.2%, um, which is, in fact, even lower than Buddhism, which has, has a, um, has a participation. Buddhism is the one, that, and Hinduism are the, uh, the ones that are increasing the most at the moment. Yes, um, Buddhism is actually two point five percent of the Australian population are Buddhist, and um, we'll find out. I what, think it'll be more. I think it, it might be increasing indeed. Mm. But here at Dogs, we don't think that people should um, inaccurate lie when they fill out the census form. In fact, that's not a sensible thing. All we're asking is that um, uh, do not worry, um, do not worry, um, be honest with, with the world. And the question does not ask what religion were you born with. It actually asks whether you are or are not religious. And if you are, please, please reflect that. I mean, here at the Dogs, we're not about being anti-religion or anything like that. That's not what it's talking about. But I'm sure the Catholic Education Office, who are getting billions of dollars from the Australian government, are saying, well, 61% of the population are Christian, so we deserve that money to, to support our religion because so many people are Christian. I think it would be sensible uh, for people to fill out the Australian census. I... I myself personally am not going to put my name on it because I don't want the government giving that um, information. But that's okay. I don't put my name on my Apple iPhone contract either. Um, and I'm very careful when I use social media. And quite frankly, Google and Apple know far more about what I'm doing than the government does. And what they do with the data, um, well, they can do whatever they like. Well, you know what is, you know, I'm sorry, just have a diversion here. But you know when, if you want to buy a car and the car salesman said, trust me, yeah. you go, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I just know what Google's um, Google's corporate motto is. And Google's corporate motto is "Do no evil." Ah. Um, yeah. So if Google has to say they're so not they're doing not it, they're not on the dark net. <laughs> no. Oh, well, yeah. Well, well, yeah. Google oh, Google well, invented that's a it. Question, isn't it. It is indeed a question. You've been listening to the Dogs Program, and we're muttering here about global conspiracies at the moment, which is a, not a sensible thing to do. Now, only Google conspiracies, not global ones. No, we're, Google. We're a a little bit more specific than but that. I would point out that um, for, the, for those people who are receiving information about, about the, the census and filling it out, um, please be honest in reflecting your views because it is an important thing when it comes to the education of our children that Christianity is not overrepresented um, as a belief system. And indeed, if you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, it's not overrepresented. So that the state school system, which has values, but they're not religious ones, the values, of course, are very simple in the state school system free, secular, universal. That's the way it was set up, and that's the way we should continue. And indeed, it should be continue to be funded effectively. And just on a side note, I was I was down at a wonderful little, uh, wonderful, very large secondary college yesterday, um, on the fringes of Melbourne, which ten years ago had the most terrible reputation. You know, no one would send their children there because it was just such a rubbish school. And you hear parents, well, they said parents, it was. Parents, they parents, said it was. Of course, they said it was. And in fact, I know some teachers there. When you talk about what it was like to teach there 10 years ago, they would get that 1,000-yard stare and go, yeah, it was hard. It's a school that's turned itself around. It's a school where the kids are curious, the behaviour is exemplary. It's the most extraordinary thing. Sheer, bloody-minded, hard effort on the teachers and the administrators of a state secondary college on the fringes of Melbourne after 10 years. And it has taken 10 years. They stuck with it and they've turned it around. And anyone, anyone 
who goes around saying state schools aren't great schools um, has rocks in their head. Well, the or, children are worth or it. The children are worth <laughs> it. They are too important not to be worth it. It is indeed. We owe uh, them. Uh, working this school was the most wonderful day I've had for ages. The kids were just magnificent. And it wasn't by accident. It was because it was a state school. Anyway, we've been through the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the A&L. It's been wonderful to have your company. Um, if you are interested in what we've been talking about, Jean and I, um, you can check us out on our website, which is www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, um, when we fight the fight once more, um, when we fight to defend public education, until next week, it's bye for now. Says he.